Hi, this is Dr. John G. West, editor of The Magician's Twin. You're listening to Pints with Jack. A critic who makes no claim to be a true Shakespearean scholar, and who has been honoured by an invitation to speak about Shakespeare to such an audience as this, feels rather like a child brought in at dessert to recite his piece before the grown-ups. I have a temptation to furbish up all my meagre Shakespearean scholarship, and to plunge into some textual or chronological problem in the hope of seeming, for this one hour, more of an expert than I am. But it really won't do. I should not deceive you. I should not even deceive myself. I have therefore decided to bestow all my childishness upon you. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 33, Jack's Bookshelf, William Shakespeare. After Hours with Dr. Sarah Waters. Hello everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading through the works of C.S. Lewis. But this month, we're working through Jack's bookshelf, looking at the authors and the books which shaped the life and writing of C.S. Lewis. Last week, we considered Dante Alighieri, and today we are considering William Shakespeare. And the opening quotation was from an essay that Lewis wrote called Hamlet, The Prince or the Poem. Today, guiding us through the bar's life and works is Dr. Sarah Waters. Dr. Sarah Waters is a lecturer in English literature and honorary junior research fellow at the University of Buckingham. Her main research areas are Shakespeare, early modern drama, medical humanities, C.S. Lewis, and Inkling studies. Her interest in C.S. Lewis lies especially in the literary influences on his writing and the interplay between his academic life and writings and his fiction with a particular focus on Shakespeare. Dr. Sarah Waters, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks very much for having me. So you seem to have been very busy recently. It seems like every time I go on social media, I see you giving a talk at another part of the country, and particularly on this country as well, the United States. Yes, that's that's true. It's partly because I'm currently on research leave or on sabbatical, um, and I decided to spend my sabbatical in the US because this is where most of the uh, Lewis material that I'm working with is located. And one of the reasons that I came over in the first place was I was invited by the Batson Shakespeare Society at Wheaton College to give their annual lecture, which happened in April. Um, and so I've had a series of other talks. I was, I'm just back from the International Congress of Medieval Studies. And I think that's about it for the talks I'm giving at the moment, but it has been a very busy few months. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful to see. Uh, you and I first met at the a retreat in Montreat several years right. ago now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you even have your doctorate at that point? Uh, just about. Yes. <laughs> just about. <laughs> um, I think I, I'd, I'd graduated that summer before. So, yeah, mm. it's it fresh, fresh PhD. <laughs> well, today I'm enjoying a latte because there's a rumor going around that you're a bit of a coffee snob. Uh, are you drinking anything? Uh, I am drinking coffee, yes. Um, I'm usually found with coffee. I'm not a coffee snob. I mean, I like any kind of coffee, whatever's closest, basically. So. <laughs> oh, well. Cheers. Cheers. So let's start with some basics. Who was Shakespeare? When did he live? What sort of world was he born into? Sure. So Shakespeare is from the what's often called the early modern period. He lived between 1564 and 1616. And he split his life basically between Stratford-upon-Avon and London. So his early part of his life and his later part of his life was in Stratford, which is in the Midlands, the middle of England, not far from Birmingham. Um, and then he spent the bulk of his career in London, um, in and around the playhouses, um, outside the city limits, 
that period of time that he's living in, there are two monarchs on the throne. So there's Elizabeth I, um, and she's on the throne until 1603. And then she is replaced. She doesn't have any heirs. So she's replaced by James I and VI, uh, first of England, sixth of Scotland. It's the first time the crowns are united. And Shakespeare riffs on that kind of idea and plays like Macbeth. Uh, so that's his period. Hmm. Now, as I was growing up, I remember that some people affirmed very strongly that Shakespeare didn't write everything that was attributed to him, or sometimes even that he existed at all. Does that theory have any currency today? Well, that depends who you ask. But amongst most scholars, <laughs> no, is the basic answer to that question. Um, there will always be denies of any kind of thing associated with genius, I think. We, we as a people, enjoy controversy and enjoy theories that maybe this thing didn't happen. Um, but what is perhaps more helpful is to think about the fact that Shakespeare wasn't only writing plays on his own, but he was also writing in collaboration. And so that's a more helpful way of conceptualizing the fact that he maybe didn't solely write all of the plays. Actually, on quite a lot of them now, there's been some really useful scholarship thinking about the fact that he was collaborating with other playwrights from the period as well. So he was doing a lot of stuff on his own. And I, I think that Shakespeare was a legitimate person. I don't think it was someone else publishing under his name. But he wasn't only, he wasn't sole author on all of his plays. One thing that I find interesting about those who do deny Shakespeare's existence or that he was the author is that not only do they attribute all of Shakespeare's plays to this other person, but usually the plays of a bunch of other people. Right. And it always struck me that Shakespeare's output purely by himself was considerable. So adding Absolutely. yet more to that seems kind of bizarre. Yeah. But as I did a little bit of a deep dive into this, uh, the conspiracy theory corners. Uh, one thing that I was quite shocked by was the fact that we actually don't know a whole lot about Shakespeare's life. Right. Yeah. How is that possible if if he is, you know, the bard of Stratford-upon-Avon? Is it just that his works weren't as popular as they are today? How do we explain this? Well, I, I mean, I think you're right that that's actually part of the reason that these kind of conspiracies exist, because there's these gaps where we don't know where Shakespeare was, we don't know what he was doing. So the most famous of those is at some point he left Stratford and arrived in London. And we don't know exactly what happened in those intervening years. We don't know where he was. There's all kinds of theories. This is a period of time, though, where it's not unusual to not know that much about Shakespeare. We don't know that much about Christopher Marlowe, except that he was a spy. Um, and, and that kind of clouds away that people view him. Also, Shakespeare is not of a particularly, initially of a particularly um, important class in that he's not going off to university and so on. So we don't have those kinds of records either, whereas we do have those sorts of records for playwrights like Ben Johnson mm -hmm. around. And frankly, that would have required Shakespeare to do a little more writing about himself rather than plays, and he just didn't do that. So, um, but but from that period of time, it's it's not uncommon to not know that much about the authors and their lives because the more important thing was their works, um, and it wasn't so much like initially at least Shakespeare's name was selling his works. Right? Uh, that that makes a difference too. Hmm. So what is it about Shakespeare that makes him such an important and influential author? Because I think you'd be very hard pressed to find anyone that hasn't heard of him. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, well, so I'd mentioned a playwright called Ben Johnson. He is very famous for saying Shakespeare was not for an age, but for all time. This is something that gets banded about a lot. And there's, I think, a lot of different ways to answer the question. But at least one important reason is the subsequent influence that Shakespeare has had on language, on literature and 
on plays and poems in particular that have followed him. Um, so you can kind of track his influence, well, really a- across the world in different ways. That was partly because um, he was exported as part of uh, imperial rule. So that that has caused a lot of Shakespeare's spread. But there are lots of words and the way that we formulate words that are indebted to Shakespeare in ways that we wouldn't necessarily think about. So he was a big fan of what are called compound words. So he he created words like birthplace and watchdog. We use these kind of words all the time, right? But we don't necessarily think about their origins. And he also um, used phrases that we use fairly regularly today, things like breaking the ice comes from his writing, Wild Goose Chase, Dead as a Doornail, which is perhaps more popularized through Dickens, but it originally came through Shakespeare. Also, I think certainly in the UK, though I think this is a broader thing too, Shakespeare has a huge cultural weight. And so, for example, the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics um, in London were framed around Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. And allegedly, the then culture secretary, Jeremy Hunt, was shown a kind of preview of what the opening ceremony would look like. And he watched the whole thing and he said to the, the creator, a guy called Danny Boyle, well, okay, but, but where's Shakespeare? And he'd missed that there was one line that they had quoted from The Tempest. So there was a line read out by Kenneth Branagh, who was dressed as Eisenbach, Kingdom Brunel, saying... Be not afeard, this isle is full of noises. Now, Shakespeare is not talking about England at that point in the play, but they're repurposing it and making it about this uh, this wonderful island, this kind of British Isles, and, and connecting Shakespeare with a kind of patriotism, I suppose. Hmm. And that, that is how he's used, and, and not just, as you might perhaps expect, not just within England, but, but more broadly than that too. And because he's so central to at least a Western education today, and actually not just a Western education, it's a kind of frame of reference that people at least have on their radar, even if they're not totally secure with thinking about the plots and the ideas that that Shakespeare's expressing. Just to show how important or how wide his reach was, um, Nelson Mandela, when he was um, a political prisoner in the 1970s, had access to Shakespeare's complete works. Now, he wasn't supposed to. They weren't allowed to have access to Shakespeare's complete works. But another prisoner managed to smuggle one in using Hindu figures to disguise the Shakespeare book and its real cover. He told his jailers it was a sacred text and therefore he needed to retain it um, and somehow was able to do it. And so he asked all of the prisoners to put their names down by a passage of Shakespeare that really spoke to them. And Nelson Mandela put his signature by a passage from Julius Caesar. This is in 1977. The passage is, Cowards die many times before their death. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I have yet heard, it seems to me the most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. And he quoted that in a later speech that he gave as well. So Shakespeare has, I think, has a capacity to kind of potentially speak to different situations or at least be used as a frame of reference that in some ways is away from other cultural or religious um, framings that that can affect those sorts of things. Hmm. I've always put down his popularity to the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio played Romeo in the movie. But. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that it's certainly a certain <laughs> generation that really helped. <laughs> for sure. And, and you get that today as well. So if people want to make their Shakespeare play particularly interesting or one way that they'll do that is to get the person who they think is the most important. So like Benedict Cumberbatch, for example, was enlisted to play. Um, I want to say Richard III. I think it's Richard III. David Tennant played Hamlet. So you pick you pick an actor who who has 
who's going to bring in the crowds? Because Shakespeare will bring in the crowds, but if you want to hit the next generation, then you probably pick an interesting actor who people have heard of. You mentioned his impact on the English language. And the most popular figure I found was about 1,700 words that they think he might have introduced. That sounds about right. I mean, him, Milton, and the King James Bible, are Milton's Paradise Lost particularly, are kind of the key influences on the English that we now speak. And that's partly because they're writing it down, Hmm. uh, right? So that it's not necessarily that they created all of these words, but it is hard to pinpoint the number. So when did you first come across Shakespeare and what was it that got you hooked? That's a good question. So I had to study The Tempest when I was doing some exams at the end of primary school, I think it was. So I would have been about uh, 11, something like that. I didn't really know anything about the plot and my parents gave me a sort of Tales from Shakespeare summary to read. Um, and they said, well, if you read this, we'll do something exciting this evening. And I didn't read it, which is uh, you know bad form, of course. Um, <laughs> but then they told me that if I did read it, we were going to go and see a production of The Tempest. So I read, dutifully read this and we went, I lived, I grew up near Cambridge. So we went to see a student production in, I think, Jesus College Chapel in one of the college chapels. And my distinct memory of this is that Prospero kept banging his stick and they had strobe lighting. And that was very exciting. <laughs> uh, we sat on the very cold, very uncomfortable floor, but it was a pretty good production, I think. But I then had to study a, a bunch of plays at, at school and I I actually really didn't like Shakespeare until I went to university. I liked that production and I kind of liked The Tempest, but we had to study, I think it was Othello, and I really didn't like it. I just didn't understand it. I read it and I just didn't get it. I understood what the plot was doing, but I really struggled with the language. But I had a really good Shakespeare lecturer at university who got me very excited, particularly because he talked about the afterlives of Shakespeare. And he talked about things like 10 Things I Hate About You. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, Shakespeare has some relevance right now. And that's really interesting. So now I want to think about how the plays are operating and so on. So, yeah, I came to Shakespeare perhaps a lot later than you might expect based on what I now do. And we'll, we'll talk about Shakespeare's influence on Lewis in a little bit. But do we know what books and authors shaped Shakespeare himself? Yes. So... Um, Quite a lot, essentially, is is the basic answer. Shakespeare very rarely came up with his own plots. Pretty often he was ripping off other books um, or other things that were already um, in existence. And they might be other plays, but but more usually they were other sources that he then uh, retold in a play format. So texts like Ovid's Metamorphoses, for example, um, things like Dante um, and the Iliad, and those he's reading in translation, or at least we think he's reading those in translation, it's pretty unlikely that he had competence, sufficient competence in Italian, for example, but he can access them through, through translation. He would have studied Latin and Greek at school, even though he didn't go to university. He went to a pretty good grammar school uh, in Stratford. So the popular assumption that he didn't know very much about classical myth um, is not is not true. He knew less than he would have had he have gone to university. But he also worked with a lot of historical chronicles. So um, works by people like Hollinshead and uh, Edward Hall. And then plays like Taming of the Shrew, for example, or Merchant of Venice are also indebted to other contemporary plays that are happening at the time. So there's the conceited history called The Taming of a Shrew, which is an earlier play. It's not 
The Taming of the Shrew is another one. Uh, Spanish Tragedies by a guy called Thomas Kidd. And that has a sort of early um, exploration of revenge tragedy, which influenced Hamlet. Um, so he's influenced by a lot of different texts, um, either historic or contemporary or rewritings from the contemporary period as well. Mm-hmm. And I heard someone say that what Shakespeare does with these well-established stories is add his own particular twist. Right. And yep. so when people would have been seeing these plays, they would have spotted the twist and therefore seen what he was right. doing, what he was subverting. You know, Ryan, yeah. Ryan yeah, Johnson is always, is always referred to as being subverting expectations, but it seems that Shakespeare was doing that before he was. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, like, he changes the kind of character that the friar is in Romeo and Juliet, for example. So he's using an established plot, and they, there were there were at least 10 other versions of that kind of plot, but but then he's playing around with those characters. So you're right, He's some of these formulations, the audience are going to be interested partly because they already know, and then they want to know what he's done with. <laughs> and I think I heard someone say that there's probably only one plot that he actually came up with, which was The Tempest. What do you make of that? Yes, well, uh, yes. Um, the, I, I was looking at this again this morning. So Love's Labour's Lost is pretty original, but there are aspects of the speeches that he plays around with from other texts. That's an, that's an early play. But a lot of them, he's either hugely changing from his source material or he's using it very, very tightly and then just shifting gear towards the end. So, Yeah. Um, he had a habit of using sources, but that was that was pretty common practice, um, mm. and and he knew what worked, I suppose, right? He knew what sold, uh, <laughs> and let's face it, he wanted to make some money. Absolutely. Now we've named a lot of his plays so far already, and I'm sure most people could name a play or two. But would you mind just giving us a sketch of his corpus and some of his more important works? Yeah, sure. So he's he's probably best known for his plays, but he also wrote poetry too. So he writes uh, four long poems and then a whole series of sonnets um, as well. Um, and partly he, he switches to writing poetry because the theatres are shut because of the plague um, a couple of times. And so he's got to find something to do. He needs to make some money. He needs to do something. So he writes these longer poems. And you can see the influence of that on, on the plays that then follow. Probably most people know him either for his comedies or his tragedies, I suspect. Or then maybe he's what are called tragic comedies, which are his later works, where he's playing around with what the parameters of tragedy and comedy are. The easiest way to distinguish between tragedy and comedy in Shakespearean terms is that in tragedies, pretty much everyone ends up dead. And in a comedy, it usually ends in some kind of marriage. So it doesn't mean that it is laugh out loud funny, though it can be, but it can also be laugh out loud funny in a tragedy as well. He also wrote history plays, which uh, retell or give a particular slant on historical characters, people like Henry V, Richard II, Richard III. Uh, He goes as far as Henry VIII. Um, He's collaborating on that play later in his life. King John's an early, early one, uh, an earlier king that he looks at. Um, His probably his most famous plays. I would guess at his tragedies. I think they're performed more than his comedies, unless you go and watch Shakespeare in the Park, in which place you're much more likely to see comedy <laughs> than a tragedy because it's a little more upbeat. Um, so in Oxford every summer, for example, there are there's a big Shakespeare festival um, and pretty much every play I think I've seen at that has been either a comedy or a tragedy comedy. They do do tragedies, but it's not so common. So Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet's, 
maybe Richard III is probably a history that people have perhaps heard of. Uh, so he's he's most famous um, for being a horribly ruthless leader who does get his comeuppance at the end. And there's a famous line from that play, which is, my horse, my horse, a kingdom, my horse, right? Um, Hamlet is famous, of course, for exploring spaces between life and death um, and what that looks like and the kind of moral quandary. If you suddenly discover that the person who has usurped the throne has also killed your dad and what you're going to do about it. Romeo and Juliet is, I think, very unhelpfully often seen as a nice romantic love story. It's a horrible, <laughs> horrible love story. Please, please don't think of it like that. Um, well, of course, Romeo and Juliet fall in love, but they're from two opposing families. They're not allowed to be in love and they meet a tragic end um, trying to unite one another. And the hope is at the end of the play that the families will stop fighting. But it's not exactly clear that that's going to happen. So Shakespeare explores all kinds of different things in his plays. And he wrote he wrote a lot, a lot of plays, um, at least 37. He collaborated on, on more than that. Um, his plays are all collected, well, not all of them, most of his plays are collected in what's called the First Folio, which is not published until after he dies, until 1623. So he dies 1616. And that collects almost all of the plays that we know today. About half of those plays collected had not been printed before that point. Um, and or they, if they had, they were printed in what are called quartos, which is a quarter of the size of a page of the folio. So a folio is a big, big page. Quarto is going to be a quarter of the size of that. And they were usually prompt, more like written by or people ripping off actors' scripts or um, prompt books. And so they weren't necessarily entirely accurate. They can be. But it's why we get lots of um, footnotes in editions of Shakespeare, because there'll be variants in, well, you know, we've got five versions of this play and these are the differences between them um, and first folio um he's sometimes seen as the most authoritative to be honest it depends on which play mm -hmm. and i'm guessing you have very similar kind of textual critical questions that you find among biblical studies and right. as well as the philosophical presuppositions that you come to those different versions as to what you're going to regard as uh, more accurate right, exactly yeah very unhelpfully one of the um one of the hamlet uh, Quartos has a nickname of the bad Quarto. So you can imagine people are going to make certain assumptions if they see that. <laughs> right. So let's connect all this to Lewis. So first of all, would you mind telling us about your research connecting Shakespeare and Lewis together? Sure. So I've been working on this uh, for about 10 years now. Um, just a slightly scary thought, I suppose. I started off by thinking about um, I'd seen these Shakespeare references in Narnia, and I kind of wanted to know why Lewis was doing that. Um, and I knew that Lewis had written some academic work, but I didn't know very much about it. I was starting this out as a, a first year grad student. I wanted to think about how Lewis was engaging with Shakespeare across his writings, really. And um, my research has kind of sprung out from that. So I'm not just thinking about Narnia anymore, though I am still thinking about that. But really to think about why Lewis is using Shakespeare as a reference point sometimes. Why is that a helpful thing for him to do or maybe not so helpful a thing for him to do? Is he actually thinking about Shakespeare in his academic life? Because really most people, if they know his academic works, probably know him for writing about Spencer and Milton. They're perhaps his most famous areas. If you have braved the Oxford History of English Literature, which is a very large volume, then you might know him for a broader range and you might know that he did some stuff on Shakespeare. 
but then he's focused on the poetry that the subtitle of that book is excluding drama right mm-hmm. he didn't write the drama bit he does talk about the plays but that's not the focus so i wanted to think about why that was the case and it's not the case that lewis didn't write about shakespeare he did in terms of his published works on shakespeare there's not a huge amount and so it can leave us with the impression that well you know shakespeare's just this kind of tangential thing which is sort of true, but also not exactly true. So one of the other things that I've been working on, um, and this is partly why I've been doing a lot of archival work, is looking at how Lewis engages a reader with Shakespeare as well. So looking at his marginalia. Um, so I've been working at the Wade Centre on that um, and elsewhere as well. And kind of plotting the story. So like, here's what he does in his books. Here's what he does in his published works. Here's how he uses Shakespeare as a frame of reference in his apologetics or in his fiction or whatever. So um, I had a, an article come out at the end of last year thinking about how he uses King Lear in the Four Loves, for example. And why? Uh, why? Why does he use that and not some kind of scriptural pas- passage, for instance? And I think there's a really clear reason why. And it's not just that I want to suggest that Lewis is only engaging with Shakespeare. I think that would be a very stupid thing to say. But I think that Shakespeare is one of the voices we need to think about when we're reading Lewis. So, in what ways did Shakespeare influence Lewis, as well as the Inklings more broadly? If you want to talk about that, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, actually, there are there are better Inklings to talk about with Inklings than Shakespeare than Lewis, perhaps in some ways. Um, so, Neville Coghill was uh, producing and directing a lot of Shakespeare during the period of time when Lewis knew him and when they were um, engaging with different discussions. Um, he has. He published articles and he's got a book which is called Shakespeare's Professional Skills, um, where he explores some of those issues. Uh, Charles Williams wrote about Shakespeare too, um, in perhaps more detail than you might expect. He has a, a kind of spoof play, which is called, I think it's called The Myth of Shakespeare. It might be called A Myth of Shakespeare. But he also, in his some of his more academic work, explores, explores Shakespeare in that. Uh, Hugo Dyson wrote quite a bit about Shakespeare, actually, too. He, he also gave one of the British Academy lectures, uh, which Lewis did um, in 42, Dyson gave one a little later, which is a big prestigious thing to do. But I think some of the ways that Shakespeare influences Lewis or the way that Lewis uses Shakespeare, at least, is that he's thinking we're now living in a culture where an expectation and a knowledge of scriptural passages is is not a given. He writes about this quite a bit when he's seeing correspondence uh, preparing for the talks that become mere Christianity. Um, And he writes to um, James Welch of the the BBC. He says, well, when the New Testament is being written, there is an assumption that people are aware of the Old Testament, right? We don't live in a world where people even have that level of familiarity anymore. So we need another, another way of making this much more accessible. And so I think one of the things he does with Shakespeare is he, this is something that is, something that people will be aware of. If you say something about Hamlet to an audience in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, um, in in England, certainly, and more widely too, I think, that's going to be something that, oh yeah, well, I remember that from this, uh, or I remember seeing production of that um, or whatever. And so when he says that a character in, in Narnia looks altogether a little bit like Hamlet, he knows that his his children readers are not necessarily going to know what that means, right? Mm. The first time you read that when you're seven, you're probably not going to know. 
But you might then get to the situation where you then read Hamlet and you remember that there was that character who looks altogether a little bit like Hamlet and it will reframe the way you think about Hamlet and it will reframe the way that you think about that character um, mm. who just not, not to keep you, you know, waiting is from the silver chair. Who also flirts with madness. Right, exactly. And there's so much uh, kind of Hamlet imagery that he's weaving in beyond just that line. And so this is what you also find with Lewis. He'll make a reference to a play or he'll, in correspondence, he'll use a line which is from a play, but he'll slightly rework it, often unhelpfully in the footnotes of the collected letters. Also, people will say, well, this isn't quite right. Lewis really meant this line, I think. And I think probably the reality most of the time was that he knew the line and he wanted to reframe it. He wasn't going to bother to look it up, but he also wanted to repurpose it for his own purposes. So he wasn't so much of a kind of purist with Shakespeare. He was really thinking, well, you know, I, I remember this line. That's kind of interesting. I think I'll use that here instead. But he's, he's approaching Shakespeare primarily as a reader rather than as an audience member. On the whole, he doesn't go to performances. So the way that we engage with Shakespeare today uh, might be a little bit different to what we expect when we encounter Lewis. And he's not unusual in his period in, in taking that approach, in believing that the play should be read rather than performed. Kind of first and foremost, you approach it as a text rather than a performed text. But yeah, I think his influence is broad. Um, and I think it is there very obviously in his academic works. But what is perhaps a little bit more unusual is that he is also everywhere. He's, you, know, uh, you flick through the, another page and, oh, by the way, there's another Shakespeare reference there. And you don't have to understand them to get the point of the text, right? If someone looks altogether a little bit like Hamlet, it doesn't matter if you don't know what that means, because he then goes on to describe the fact that William is dressed in black and he gives us more context. Mm. We don't need to know. But if you do know, it adds this extra layer of, of understanding and interest, I think. Mm. So it's like he's drawing upon cultural capital that he can be somewhat confident that most of his readers right. will have encountered or at the very least will encounter at some point during their education. Yeah, I think that's right. And he read an awful lot of stuff that no one else read. And I think he was aware, at least, that not everyone had exactly the, the frames of reference that he had. It's much more likely that people are reading Shakespeare than Spencer, for instance. That doesn't mean he doesn't use Spencer imagery all the time. He does. He is also aware, particularly when he's writing his apologetics, for instance, okay, well, I'm really trying to be accessible here. How can I do that? How can I get a way in that isn't going to turn people off and isn't going to make them think, well, I don't know what that is. That's way too academic for me. There's no way I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with that. And so he gives a flavor of the text without giving a lot of detail. You don't need it um, for very often for the analogies, but you can read them through. If you know more, then it adds, I think it adds an extra dimension. Hmm. Now, we've spoken mainly about how Lewis uses Shakespeare, um, mm -hmm. but what does he comment on Shakespeare as a whole when he's addressing it? So I quoted at the beginning, Hamlet, the Prince of the Poem, and yeah. he's also got another essay, Variations in Shakespeare and others. Yeah. What are, what are his main points of interest when he's talking to sure. other people actually about this author yeah. and his works? Yeah, so you're right. Both of those essays were originally delivered as talks. Um, so the Hamlet piece was a lecture to the British Academy in 1942. And the variation in Shakespeare and others was a, a lecture he gave to the Mermaid Club in 39. So kind of around the same time. With the Hamlet essay, as a quotation you gave sort of alluded to, 
he begins by saying, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. Please, please don't, don't, don't think that I am. I'm not even going to pretend to be. It would be really stupid for me to pretend to do that. But it's very tempting because I'm in front of this very prestigious audience. And so what he decides to do is to talk about the state of criticism with the play. So he basically says, here's what people have been arguing about for all of this time. And this is what I want to add to these discussions that are already ongoing. And he ends very nicely by talking about how he wants to return to a world where we're noticing what a child notices. So he gives this very, very long list in a ridiculously long sentence where he, he points us to these different images. And that's partly what he's interested in in Shakespeare because the variation essay that you also mentioned talks about the way that Shakespeare gives us images. Um, so when he's creating metaphors and when he's trying to, to frame the picture, um, he describes, uh, Lewis says, that he uses this kind of, almost like, a, Shakespeare's almost like a magpie creator. He pinches all of these different images and then throws them together and sees what happens. And he's comparing Shakespeare particularly with Milton um, in that piece, so he does talk about other writers too. And he says this is the way he creates these multi-layered images. He goes back and he, he throws more and more at it. He says his method combines the imaginative splendor of the highest type of lyric and the realistic presentation of human life and character. So he throws all of this stuff, and yet somehow it seems like a realistic kind of person. It's, it's more human, perhaps, than a more contrived poetic creation might be. And so a lot of what he's doing in the Hamlet piece is responding to a critic whose interpretation of Shakespeare he took particular issue to, which is T.S. Eliot. Um, and he's often responding to him in his criticism, particularly his Shakespeare criticism. They had an interesting and complex relationship, I think, um, at least in print. But in the variation, he's a little more interested in the poetic. And we see that then following through when he writes about the sonnets in the Oxford History of English Literature, which is the other kind of substantial discussion you get of Lewis on Shakespeare from a more uh, academic perspective. And there he's really thinking about, okay, well, how do these sonnets fit in the context of other poetry that's being written in this period. Is Shakespeare doing something different here? Why is he doing it in the way that he's doing it? Um, so you get a more extended discussion of that there too. Hmm. We will be looking at T.S. Eliot next season of when we, do, when we do Jack's bookshelf. Uh, I've, I've constantly heard it mentioned, and I'm pretty sure that there's some uh, hilarious sniping at each other that, that has to be in the sources there somewhere. There was a really good article in, I think, Mythlore about this, and I think last year, talking about a kind of reassessment of Lewis and Eliot and why we need a little bit more context. Um, but, yeah, some really interesting uh, dialogue. I was reading something recently. I think Lewis was writing in – oh, no, so Eliot wrote to Lewis in, I think, 1942, saying, I want you to review this book. And Lewis writes back and says, well, you know, I'm not really a medievalist anymore. And I'm more of an ex-medievalist. And even when I was, I couldn't possibly have commented on this, but I really wish I could. And so I think that gives us a, you know, they, they, they are respecting one another in, in that respect. It's really easy to get a sense that, like, Lewis just hated Eliot. And that's not exactly true. He really, really didn't like Proof Rock. Um, he didn't really like the Wasteland either. But he also took issue with, with Eliot's scholarship perspectives and his more, um, well, in some ways polar opposite approach to the approach Lewis was taking. Hmm. Well, let's shift gears now. If someone has never read Shakespeare or hasn't read it since 
high school, secondary school, how would you recommend they begin as an adult? Because at my school, I think we did two plays, maybe three. I definitely remember Julius Caesar, definitely did Macbeth. Oh, and we did the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet. Uh, but then I didn't touch it until my late 20s again when I moved to San Diego. I was looking for stuff to do and I saw that they were putting on a production of Romeo and Juliet. So I went to the local bookstore, got a book, read through it, and then went and saw it and tried to understand why I didn't find this stuff interesting when I was at school. So how would you recommend people begin tackling Shakespeare afresh as an adult? So I think your approach is probably quite good, um, although I do it in a, the reverse order, mm -hmm. in that I would suggest that people go and see a Shakespeare play first. Like that's a, the, one of the best things to do because Shakespeare is writing plays, right? Plays are designed to be performed. And it can be really helpful to read some kind of plot summary before you go and see a play, particularly if you're worried that you might struggle with the language. Um, so there are a lot of good online uh, plot summaries of that description. If you want to start by reading Shakespeare as opposed to seeing him in performance, oh, and there, there are film adaptations as well. So that's another option if you don't have local productions um, available to you. A lot of summer productions, depending where you live, in a lot of cities, they're, they're pretty affordable or, or they're free. Hmm. Um, so that can be a nice way to kind of dip your toes in without feeling like you're fully committing to Shakespeare. <laughs> um, but... Um, if you want some really useful footnotes, then the Arden editions of Shakespeare are about the best. But the other thing I would say is don't buy the cheapest of the cheap Shakespeare edition because they will not have any glasses on the language. I mean, it will be really confusing um, if you're not familiar with early modern English. Um, there are some Shakespeare in modern English versions available. They're not a translation. They just modernize the spelling. So that can sometimes be helpful. Um, but even something like very basic, like the Signet Classics, for instance, will have a, a really clear introduction, giving you a bit of background on Shakespeare, a bit of background on the play, not too much, and we'll have a glossary so that if there's stuff you want to look up, then you can. There's also a website which is called shakespeareswords.com, and I'm not on commission from them, but it is very useful, where you can just look up a word if you don't know what it means, and it provides a, a kind of dictionary that gives it gives you it um, in terms of how we use that word today, or if we don't use it, what an equivalent word might be. Um, and that's freely available as well. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. I, I think I would agree with your assessment. It would have probably been better to go to a play first. I will say, however, I was at least tuned into the language by the time I got there. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I had I had learned some of the basic things that are worth knowing, like when she says, wherefore art thou Romeo? She's saying, why are you called Romeo? Not where are right. you? yeah. Yeah, 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 which is not intuitive no. if you don't, if you know, if you haven't looked at the glasses. And actually, the, I was saying that I got more into Shakespeare when I was doing him as an undergraduate. Part of the reason for that is that I had a summer job cleaning, and the only way for me to get through the text was to listen to audiobook versions. Mm. And I think actually, as a kind of interim ground between performance and reading, audio can be really helpful just because there's things you pick up when you hear it that you just don't pick up when you read it. Now, on this podcast, we constantly argue about which work of Lewis's we think is best. Um, and Andrew keeps wanting to change it to our favorite because he thinks he knows what's the best and we disagree. But when it comes to Shakespeare, what do you think is Shakespeare's best? And is it also your favorite? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I really like The Winter's Tale. I'm not sure whether it's his best but I do really like it I think it's got a good combination of all kinds of things it's also the one that is very famous for having the 
crazy stage direction exit pursued by a bear, um, which is just exciting, I think. Um, it's one of his what are called tragedy comedies, so it's a later play, and it's that means that it's got a lot of horrible tragedy, but also some hope at the end as well, and it has a really beautiful scene, um, which I just conducted a roundtable on last week about what happens to Hermione, but it's got a very interesting um, plot I like The Tempest a lot as well, partly for kind of historic reasons, because it was the first Shakespeare I encountered. I would suppose that people would suggest that something like Hamlet is his best. I'm not sure that I agree that it's either the best, and it's definitely not my favourite. Henry V is pretty good, um, if you want a more traditional, in some ways, history play. Um, And it has a really interesting speech at the beginning about the force of the imagination. Um, It talks about, you know, you can't see all of this stuff, but you've got to imagine that this this space um, is a place where all of these wonderful things can happen. So um, he very famously in that speech talks about the wooden O, which is associated now with the Globe Theatre, though he probably wasn't talking about that. But it begins, O for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, a monarchs to behold the swelling sea. And he talks about, you know, fill this space with your imaginations. Imagine it is this. And I think we we have a tendency today to expect with productions, well, you've got to show us all of that. And actually, a lot of it is in the language. That's that's how it's being created. Dr. Sarah Waters, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell people where they can go to find out more about you and anything else you'd like to advertise as you uh, traipse across the United States telling people about Shakespeare and C.S. Lewis? Thank you very much. Yes. Well, if you want to hear me come and if you want me to come and talk to you about Shakespeare and Lewis, then please do get in touch. Um, the best way to get a hold of me is through my university. Um, so that's the University of Buckingham. Um, and uh, I am also on Twitter. You can find me there. Um, I am not the Sarah Waters who is the author who you might get confused about. So just to clarify, that is not me, I'm afraid. I'm an author, but not that particular one. Um, and I also have an academia page. Um, you can find me there too. And I'd be delighted to hear from you. And links to all of those will be in the show notes. So thanks again to Dr. Sarah Waters for coming on the show. Thank you to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll. Thank you to all of our listeners, particularly our patron supporters, and especially our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week, particularly every Tuesday, uh, offering the prayer intentions from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And if you haven't touched Shakespeare in a while, maybe buy yourself some tickets or it's summer. So check your local government website and see if there's something going on. And please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.